This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. Good afternoon, everybody. I am Brock Richardson, and I am in the chair of the hosting today as Kelly and Ramia are both uh, off-site doing some shooting for the TV and what will be eventually Kelly and Ramia, as announced earlier this week. Alongside me is Danielle McLaughlin, who you know from Know Your Rights Mondays in Segment 7. Danielle, how are you? I'm very well, Brock. It's lovely to be together again. This is a a rare treat for us, but uh, we get to co-host together and uh, you tell me where to go and I go there. So it's a (laughs) lot of fun. (laughs) Yes, yes. It was kind of one of those things of like when Kelly came, uh, came, came knocking at my door and said, oh, we have promos to shoot. It was like, oh, shucks. I have to host the show alongside Danielle. What a treat that will be. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they'll be back tomorrow, but they're busy off site. Meanwhile, we get all the fun. Yes, we do indeed. And we learn a lot. Let's check out what's coming up on today's show. Halloween might be behind us, but if you still want that scratch and itch for horror, Mike Fair tells us about choice of games, a completely accessible way that you can delve into some stories driven by games. So looking forward to that conversation. Sounds like fun. We also get an insight into the lives of people with disabilities in the UK as our bestie Fern Lullum highlights new figures about disability from the UK Office for National Statistics. Looking forward to that conversation as well. In our two, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Children's Charity, joins us and she'll be telling us about a new event that they're going to be having over two days, which will be very cool. It's a trade show talking about everything from adaptive technology to accessible sports. So that conversation will be in our two right here on Kelly and Company. Well, Danielle, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> we had a conversation pre-show, as we often do, about what to talk about in segment one. And one of the things that came up was discussing about our neighbors and how they can be fun sometimes. And you have a story about leaf raking that we're going to oh, chat about. Oh, my goodness. Well, who knew that raking your leaves could become so political? But um, I belong to a, an Ontario Gardeners Facebook uh, page, and I also have lots of neighbors on a street with many very large trees, which at this moment are dropping many very large leaves. Now, there are two uh, schools of thought. Uh, one is you leave the leaves, you don't touch them, you don't, uh, you don't move them, and then in the spring you can deal with it. Uh, the second school of thought is that you use your uh, electric lawnmower and you mulch the leaves into your lawn if you have a lawn, and that that's a good thing for the health of, of the lawn. Then there are the people 
who say you mustn't do anything because you have to understand that all the pollinators that we are going to want again in the spring are actually living in and amongst the leaves and in the hollow stems of plants that are no longer alive. And we just have to leave all of that. Don't even put them in bags. Don't put them out for collection. Wake them into the garden beds. You can take them off your lawn, according to some people, so long as you put them in the garden beds without disturbing them too much. Then there are the people who really like to have a nice, tidy-looking garden, and they feel affronted when they see your garden covered in leaves, and they may say, well, when are you going to rake your leaves? Or do you know that your leaves are blowing into my garden or onto my lawn? And it's just become rather uh, heated. Who knew that leaves could, could bring about so many different opinions. What's your experience with the, the neighbors and the leaves, Brock? Well, I uh, live for probably about 13 years of my life um, next to a neighbor who, when we first moved in, we had not actually, let me rewind a bit, we had not even yet moved in. We had come just see the house, you know, to make sure everything was moved out from the previous owners, all those things. And this neighbor who we had never met come over to our house, introduced himself rather politely and said, I'm your neighbor and I would like for you to build a um, gate between my yard and your yard because right now there isn't a gate. And I'd like for you to do that uh, before you move in. And my father subsequently responded with, can we breathe before we uh, <laughs> do, do any of this? And uh, anyway, we ended up sp splitting the fence, half for him, half for us, and it was all good. As time went on, we started to learn that we had a neighbor who is one of those neighbors that if a leaf or any product, for that matter, blew onto his lawn, you would hear about it. And it could be one simple leaf, and he would walk over and knock on the door and read you the riot act about why <laughs> there's one single leaf on your on his property and all of those things. And then we one day were uh, looking out the window, and he was washing his driveway. Yes, that's right. I said washing his driveway. And he was just Mr. I wanted to be particular. I wanted to work the way it's going to work. And this was the trouble we had with our neighbors. So I am all too familiar, Danielle, with challenging neighbors. And it can be fun, oh, but sometimes painstaking all at the same time. Well, I, I have lucked out in the neighbor department um, where I live currently, but I've had some of the the more challenging sorts of neighbors in my in my past history. Uh, a friend of mine told me a story about a neighbor of his who was so meticulous with the leaves that he would stand under his tree and rake the tree, rake the leaves off the tree and get them into bags before they could even hit the ground. So, you know, there are people who seem to have a vendetta against leaves. I'm, I'm not really sure why. I think they look rather pretty when they're spread out all underneath the tree that they've fallen from and you get this kind of carpet effect and if they're brightly colored it's you know looks like a a bright yellow or, or orange carpet and I, i'm very fond of that but clearly <laughs> your old neighbor would have objected strongly to, to that kind of, uh, of garden 
my. Do you know, <laughs> do you know I, I honestly can say that one of my favorite sounds when it's fall is when you have the leaves which have fallen off the tree and then as my wheels would go over them, if there was a bunch, that sound of just the leaf would be just so appealing to my ears. So I was happy having all kinds of leaves on my driveway because I like just the sound of the leaves. And the fall and spring and summer are my favorite time of year. So you're tuned into Kelly and Company. We're with you for two hours. And as I mentioned off the top, Michael Fair will join us next, talking to us about a community of authors creating completely accessible and complex story-driven games, which puts you in charge. That's next right here on Kelly and Company. Stay with us. We'll be back. One of the great things about AMI in general is there's so many ways you can uh, get a hold of us. And one of those ways is by voicemail, one 509 That's our phone number. If you do choose that route and you want your message played on the air, do let us know so that we know whether we can or we can't. And if you don't want us to, that's cool. We won't. And we will still answer your questions. If you want to go the email route, it's feedback at AMI.ca. On Twitter, it is at AMI-audio. I'm Brock Richardson alongside Danielle McLaughlin. Brock, it's time for us to talk audio entertainment and tech with our friend Michael Fair. Hi, I'm Mike Fair. iPhones, iPods, and iPads are everywhere, and they're doing great things for the blind. We explore all that, plus audio entertainment, dramas, podcasts, internet radio and games we share it all on kelly and company halloween might be behind us but you might still want to scratch that itch for horror this week michael fair will tell us about a company and community of authors creating completely accessible and complex story-driven games which put you in charge hello michael how are you doing pretty good and uh yeah it sounds like you're you're Getting your rakes out and uh, doing battle against leaves. So, oh yeah. yes, and, and neighbors. <laughs> we we live in an apartment, so we're we're above it all, literally. Oh. <laughs> so you guys are safe from, yes. from the attack of the mad leaves. That's good. Yes. No well, raking duties for us. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so, Mike, what's the basic idea behind the Choice of Games Company? I want to hear what so, it is and what they're doing. Yeah, so they've been around since 2011. Uh, you know, that was, I guess, three or four years after the first iPhones came out. And uh, they basically are all about creating games that the the, the goal is to, to make all the choices meaningful. That's at the core of what they do, meaningful choices. And it, they really champion text-based entertainment. Uh, they basically think that nothing as good as what you're going to imagine. You know, that's that's basically you see that everywhere in their stuff. Nothing can no sound and imagery can beat the unstoppable power of your imagination. So that's uh, you know, they've been a champion of, of, of these uh, interactive fiction games. 
and uh, they build, uh, they basically allow you to do stories. Uh, authors can write these stories, and it's a combination of choice and chance. And uh, the, the, the combination of that is really powerful and gets get to some really neat stuff in terms of games. That sounds wonderful. You know, what you've just said reminds me of an interview I once heard with a little boy who had gone to see a movie um, that had come from his favorite book. And somebody said to him, well, what did you like better, the book or the movie? And he said, I like the book, which was not an illustrated book. He said, I like the book because the pictures were better. And he meant inside his mind. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, this is really Books are always better. Yeah. And Mike, what makes this style of game so accessible for blind players specifically? Well, there are a number of factors. Everything is in words and described in words. So there's no, there's not a bit of it is inaccessible. You know, there might be an odd picture, but they're just not important to gameplay, really. So that is, uh, you know, the, the big thing is, is that. And then the controls are all standard form controls, like the kind you use on web pages, checkboxes, radio buttons. You know, everything's very accessible and easy to use. And there's no time pressure. The, you know, these games wait for you to make the next choice. So you're never rushed into something. You're never panicked into something. Now, they do have things where that you, you can't do everything. Uh, and every time you make a choice, you eliminate a chance to make another choice, right? So there is that kind of thing. Uh, but the act, there's no actual time pressure. So uh, those two things really make these games fantastic for blind people and for beginners, especially when you're just getting used to controlling your device, uh, it's very easy to get into these games. Actually, it sounds like it's good for some of us who uh, have a problem with anxiety. That time pressure thing can be can make a game very unpleasant for everybody. So that's really nice to know. Yeah. How are these games more complex than simply finding the right path of choices? Well, they go one above the old choose your own adventure books, which are which yeah. would basically uh, you you make you turn read a paragraph, go to the next paragraph, and make a choice, and then go to whatever number that it says to go to. And this kind of is a similar concept, except it adds in uh, uh, basically variables and uh, in chance, so you can have random chance play a part or a chance that's influenced by. Uh, things that you've done. For example, you can have tests against variables. If your strength is 24 and you're being tested and there's, you know, that there might be a 24% chance then of success, uh, things like that, right? So you your decisions can influence other choices later on and uh, things like that. Or you might have a certain amount of money and it will keep track of that money. And as you spend it, of course, that keeps gets keep, kept track of. So you have to really think about your budgeting. So these things will play a lot more like role-playing games than like uh, those old choose your own adventure books. What is the biggest difference between choice of games and hosted games? Well, they're both exactly the same system being used. So the real difference is that the choice of games brand, uh, and they all have like choice of games in their title usually, um, they uh, are somewhere on, on, they're in the choice of games uh, section of the site. And they're, those are ones that are made by people working in the company. So their authors are working directly for the company. 
and they will get partnerships uh, for uh, things uh, like the, uh, there's one with the World of Darkness role-playing game. Uh, they, they do the Vampire Masquerade. So they uh, you'll find that in the choice of games. Meanwhile, in the hosted games, they are basically what happens is anyone can just go and decide, I want to make a game, and they can use the choice script language to make games and then set up a contract with choice of games to sell the games in, in their service. And that that's why they're called hosted games, because choice of games is hosting, uh, is providing the facilities so that these people can make money uh, by writing these games. And, and so you have these totally independent authors uh, writing games, and they, they fall under the hosted games banner, and that kind of lets people know, you know, that there might be different standards, there, there might be different, you know, conditions in terms of the, the hosted games. It's, it's from a broader staple of authors. So uh, you can sort of pick your games uh, in terms of what you want. Uh, both have advantages. So how, like, how long do, would a game take? How, you know, what's the, the extent you could expect? Well, some of these games, like they can be quite large. Some of them are millions of words long, like one over a million words. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen a two million word game, uh-huh. um, but they can be huge. And you don't see it all every time you play through. You might see a fraction of the choices in a playthrough. Uh, and you, you might read 30,000 words, but you you'd, uh, have only done a fraction of, of the total available choices. So you can play through, find another path. And uh, there's usually several paths to winning and a number of ways to lose. So they're very replayable. And uh, you can spend hours playing some of these things. Very cool. Um, Go ahead, Danielle. <laughs> okay. I, I was just going to say, I, how expensive is this? Well, the, the games are priced individually. So some games uh, you, you get, uh, will pay, you might pay $13 for the full game. There are sales often, so you might get like a 40, 40% off deal uh, in uh, some of the newer ones, especially as they're just coming out. Often they're on sale. And uh, they're also up in-app purchases. You can get little upgrades and things sometimes. So it really depends on the game. And now the one good thing here is you can try all the games before you buy and get a sense of whether you're going to like it or not. So you, you're never just buying it without any sense of what you're getting. Uh, which I really like, uh, appreciate that. And the app, of course, both the hosted games app and the choice of games app, uh, both of those are free. And of course, you can go to the website, choiceofgames.com, and that is also uh, free until you decide to invest in a game. So that's that's kind of how that works. Oh, that's great. Mike, what age are these games suitable when we look at children? Well, yeah, these games, uh, there are a couple of, of caveats here for people. I, I've seen, everything I've seen so far uh, is for adults. Uh, doesn't mean there aren't any kids' games, but I haven't found them if there are. Uh, it's, it's, there are both big collections in both apps. Uh, sexuality is, uh, there's a feature built right into the, the engine that lets you explore, identify as gay, you know, straight, uh, male, female, and and pursue romances. So that is that seems to be a common thing uh, in most of the games. And uh, so you know you don't have to sort of tap into that. Uh, but in, but if you do, then you be, you're going to be presented with options geared towards letting you explore those uh, aspects of your character. So 
uh, you know, that might be of some concern to some parents as well. Uh, there, there can be some bad language, things like that. Uh, mature subjects often are dealt with. So these uh, primarily what I've seen is, is geared toward adults. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the sort of thing, and you know, unless it has, if the choices are limited for the children, maybe. Yes. But, yeah, <laughs> even still. What about the horror-themed games uh, that are available in the collection? Uh, you know, what are they, and uh, are they really scary? Yeah, some of them are, there's some real standouts in both. Uh, when you have the choice of games, you have the partnerships, right, with the companies. So they partnered with uh, the, the World of Darkness people, and they've made a number of Vampire the Masquerade uh, games, which are, tap into this role-playing world where vampires are in the modern day, and so are organizations fighting them, and you have to sort of deal with the, the consequences and the moral dilemmas and the anguishes of that. Uh, there's another award-winning game uh, called Heart of the House that's kind of more of a paranormal romance where you're uh, an orphan uh, being sent to investigate this haunted house. You have these particular powers uh, and can sense uh, supernatural things and deal with them. So that is uh, another uh, game that, that has stood the test of time. Uh, the Luminous Underground is another kind of neat one. It, it veers more into the kind of fun horror, but it, it sort of puts you in uh, Ghostbusters territory, in this sort of fantasy city, which is kind of modern, so there's high-tech stuff, and, and you are as kind of a, a demon-slaying Ghostbuster type. Uh, hmm. So you have a technology to deal with and magic and uh, things going wrong and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. So it, it's kind of fun. And then in the hosted game side, you have standouts like the Zombie Exodus series. Uh, there's a couple of games about werewolves, a series about being a werewolf. Uh, Wayhaven Chronicles is kind of a supernatural detective series uh, of games. So there's there's a lot there. Uh, and then, of course, Zombie Exodus, which uh, has pulled me into its uh, clutches. Has there been any other games that have kind of pulled you in from a scary perspective, Mike? Well, the Zombie Exodus one has been what, what uh, really entertained me over the last weekend, uh, seeing as we were approaching Halloween. Uh, kind of puts you in charge of at the start of a zombie apocalypse. You can be a different character. You can choose from a bunch of them. I picked an officer uh, living in a kind of outside of a big city uh, and I had to go into work. And of course, during the patrol, the zombie plague exploded. It arrived in the city and life just turned upside down. And then you go through these you know choices you make about what to buy, how to fortify your house, what, you know, the steps you have to take and, uh, you know, you end up journeying out with, with people and uh, getting involved with other people that you meet along the way and making ethical choices uh, based on that and improving your stats. And I'm, I'm still living. Uh, my character is still alive. But boy, what a what a harsh world uh, that, that uh, poor officer is now in. I find myself unexpectedly leading the survivors in this pitched battle against uh, hordes of undead. <laughs> Whoa, so this sounds uh, very challenging and also fun. Well, listen, we, I'm afraid we're running short on time, but thank you so much for telling us all of this. I know that people will be very interested that the hosted games and choice of games apps are free in the App Store and in Google Play, and that all of the games are, are purchased from inside the apps. Uh, Michael Fair appears each week on Kelly and Rumya to talk about audio entertainment and accessible technology. 
We're joined next by our bestie from the UK. We're talking some national statistics next here on Kelly and Company. Stay with us. Welcome back to Kelly and Company here on AMI-audio. I'm your host for today, Brock Richardson. I'm alongside Danielle McLaughlin as we're filling in for Kelly and Ramia as they're doing some uh, TV shooting for the upcoming Kelly and Ramia TV show. Uh, If you want to take us on the road, which I sometimes do, you can listen to us on TuneIn Radio, OOTunes. If you've got the new Victor Reader streams, it's already one of the presets on it, which is really convenient when you have it already preset, because then you can just plug in and basically play. You can also get the Radio Player Canada app, which is easy to access as well. If you don't have AMI-audio favorited, you can just type that in as well and push the little heart button, and you are set and ready to go. As I mentioned, I am alongside Danielle McLaughlin. And Danielle, while we wait, well, we're going to you know, have. There, sorry, I, I was just about to uh, t- talk to you about uh, something we've been looking at a bit during the week. Um, Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault is calling out Canada's oil companies for funneling most of their record breaking profits to shareholders instead of taking action on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The Environment Minister's comments came as major oil producers began releasing their third quarter earnings. It is at least the third time in the last six months Gilbo's frustration is spilling over as oil company profits soar, but investments in climate action do not. Gilbo says it defies reason for companies not to invest in the climate action that secures their future. A spokesman for the Pathways Alliance, a group of six of Canada's biggest oil sands producers, would not react to the criticism. The group has tentative plans to spend $24 billion over the next eight years on emissions reduction projects, but is looking for more financial help from Ottawa before kicking that into gear. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press. So what do you think about that, Brock? Are you a little frustrated with that too? Yes, I think... I am frustrated with this. You know, we have to look at our environment uh, better than we do, I think. And that's, for me, that's that's where I kind of look at this and say, you know, we need to be better. What about you, Dania? Well, I, um, I find it troubling uh, because I think that there's a lot of talk about how wonderful everything is. And then they turn around and do something like that. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. It just sometimes you just have to shake your head. One of the things we're shaking our head in positivity is that we have Fern Lollum. Let's have a chat with Fern Lollum, our bestie from the UK. What's on your mind? I'm Fern Lollum from the UK, and whether serious, silly, or somewhere in between, I've got you covered. Let's face it, the most effective therapy is a chat with your bestie. Today we're talking about figures. Uh, published by the UK Office for National Statistics, or ONS, about disabilities in the UK. Fern, this is a great topic. Welcome to the program, as always. 
Yes, thank you very much, Brock. It's lovely to be here. And the ONS is the UK's largest independent producer of official statistics. So their findings tend to be taken pretty seriously. So it'll be interesting to see what they've got to say. Yes, well, it is. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. With that said, where are we going to begin? Well, I'm going to start with education, because for many people, that can be a huge factor in shaping your life. And it's certainly true in my case, because I doubt I'd be on your show today if I hadn't been to university to learn all about broadcasting. And I hope it shows. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it also helps people to understand what their choices might be that they didn't know existed before they had mm -hmm. that education. So mm -hmm. important. But what does uh, ONS have to say about the uh, ability for people with disabilities to get education? Well, only a quarter of disabled people aged 21 to 64 have a degree or equivalent as their highest qualification. Now, this compares to nearly 43% of non-disabled people. So quite a huge discrepancy there. That is quite a gap for sure. In fact, that means disabled individuals are a little more than half as likely qualified at that level. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're like half as likely to even have a degree or, or anything like that. So also disabled people are three times as likely to have no qualifications than non-disabled people. It's just amazing the difference. That's really troubling. Um, what do you think the reasons are for this discrepancy? Well, I guess there are lots of reasons, as with most things. Mm -hmm. However, many parents do complain that their disabled children are just not given the adjustments that they need to access the school curriculum. So it's just that they're not able to get that education. Yeah, I, um, I hope it's a bit of a different answer, but is the same true for uh, university education? Sadly, it does seem to be the, the same case. I mean, I see lots of complaints from disabled UK students about problems in getting reasonable adjustments. And in the worst cases, some people just say that they've just had to let, leave the course because they just can't carry on. Oh, how disappointing. You know, it must be mm. that you look so forward to it and then you just don't have the accommodation. That's Yeah, really, absolutely. Really and a huge hit to your self-esteem as well. Absolutely. And obviously, it, it will have a terrible impact on the employment prospects of, of, of people who started out and then were unable to continue. Exactly, Danielle. Yeah, that's completely right. And that brings me to my next set of figures. So I'm afraid that also, just like the others, they don't make for great reading either. Yeah. And so what are the employment figures telling us specifically? Well, between July and September 2021, only 53% of disabled people were in work compared to just over 80% of non-disabled people. That's quite shocking. It's a, a mm. you know, a, a huge gap. I mean, we've talked about education barriers, but clearly there are other barriers in addition to that. What other reasons do you think could account for such a huge difference in, in the employment? 
Mm, I think some employers worry that disabled people won't be able to do the work just because, you know, based on misconceptions or myths or preconceptions. Um, and I think also that they worry about the cost. Um, they think that it might cost them a lot of money to make the adjustments that people might need. Um, and this is often not the case at all, of course. We know that I think better disability awareness would just break down some of those barriers and make people more aware that th those things aren't the big worry that people might think they are. Mm -hmm. who, who do you the, think should be responsible for making employers aware of, of you know, their, their false information or, or their lack of understanding? Well, I just, I just think in, in general, it needs to be that they have better disability awareness training. So either they're, they're hiring people in or they have people in within the organization that know about these things that just can open people's eyes. Because to be fair, if you've never experienced disability, of course, you're going to have all, all kinds of ideas that aren't right. And that just needs to be straightened out, really. Mm -hmm. Does Do the statistics indicate that the type of disability has a bearing on employment? Yeah, they suggest that only 26% of people with severe or specific learning difficulties are in employment. And towards the other end of the scale, 63% of people with hearing difficulties are in employment. Hmm, that's fascinating. Wow. So, uh, you know, this is a... Uh... This is a huge distinction. Um, there's lots to be done on leveling up on employment, but what about other aspects of life? Yeah, so um, basically there, there are a lot of aspects that are impacted um, and I think you know there are lots of there are lots of di different disabilities that that make a lot of different um, of difference you know with that. Um, so there are some there is some figures here about visual impairment and this category has been called difficulty in seeing. So it covers a broad range of eye conditions. Um, mm. However, it still shows that only forty eight percent of people with sight loss are in employment um, and figures quoted by the UK sight loss charity suggest that this falls to just 27% for those registered blind or partially sighted. So it's just crazy just to stick with work for a second for people who don't have a lot of sight. They're just finding it so hard to get into work. And um, that, sorry, go that, ahead, Buck. I was just shocked at the, the, the mm. huge numbers. That goes into, you know, what we talked about in the above is that, you know, I think that the type of disability employers look at that and say, well, this is going to create a barrier because the individual has sight loss. How are they going to get around the office, et cetera? And, and it's just so far from not the truth. You know, we can all work, you know, um, and, and that's just the way it is. Th this is a these. That's really big difference with these statistics. How do the figures shape up with previous figures then? Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, Danielle, there's there are other aspects of life that it does affect, of course. And I was interested in figures on loneliness as well. And those mm. show that just over 15 percent of disabled people feel lonely often or always compared to just three percent, uh, 3.6 percent, sorry, of non-disabled people. So, again, a massive difference. Um, and it just shows that the gap is it seems to be getting bigger. So in 2014, the figure was that 10 0.9% um, for disabled people and 3.5% for non-disabled people. Um, 
were, you know, so there's a huge difference. So loneliness has gone up quite a lot since then. Um, And there are a lot of disabled people who, uh, you know, it it seems to have stayed the same for them, whereas with non-disabled people, loneliness seems to improve. So it's, it's very difficult because it doesn't seem like much is changing for the disabled people. Do you think the pandemic has something uh, to say about this? Is it, is it involved in, in some of these statistics, in your opinion? Yeah, I think quite possibly it is. Um, so many disabled people were advised to shield, as we know, during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. in many cases, this led to feelings of loneliness and isolation. As you can imagine, if you have to stay at home and nobody can come and see you, you're going to feel very, very lonely. Yeah, for sure. And... Obviously, you know, uh, loneliness figures were higher uh, for disabled people before, during the pandemic. But do you believe there are other factors at play here? Yeah, I I do think there are. I think the highest rates of unemployment is one of those factors. Um, and I just think that that in itself can make you feel so isolated and lonely if, if you don't have a job and you don't have somewhere to go or people to be around every day. That's for sure. Now, does this vary according to the age of people? Different age groups have different statistics? Um, well, I, yeah, I I didn't. Um, so the biggest difference, I suppose, is that the 35 to 44 age group were around 57% of disabled people experience um antisocial behavior compared to 43% of non-disabled people. So again, there's a massive gap there, but it is it seems to be in that mid-range, the 35 to 44 age group, which actually is sort of the range that we think of as not maybe having as much support as the you know the younger kids or the older adults who might have sight loss or, or other disabilities. Time is uh running out on us, but I just want to get your last feeling on this. What do you think people in general should take away from all of what we've said during this segment? Well, I I just think it's it's so saddening to see these differences in figures. And I do think that disability awareness is such a big part of of what makes the difference. I think disability needs to be looked at holistically. So from everything from habilitation when you're young to right through every stage of life to showing that there's not just one thing that can cure everything, but it really takes that holistic approach to make people feel better about themselves, less isolated, less vulnerable, and that they can do a job and be good at it and so we just really need to keep pushing that disability awareness and educating people i completely agree fern thank you so much for bringing this to us great topic as always thank you brock have a lovely show that was fern lollum who joins us every other week for highlights from the uk stay tuned as we learn about a trade show coming up next everything from adaptive sports and technology coming up next right here on kelly and company stay with us Welcome back to Kelly and Company. And I told you earlier that 
If you wanted to bring us on the road, you could do that. But if you miss our program, that's okay. We forgive you. We have repeats at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. as part of the relatively new AMI wheel as everything repeats every eight hours. And I'm Brock Richardson alongside Danielle. But before we get into our topic, Danielle, I just wanted to ask you, some of those figures were just troubling in our previous segment. And uh, yeah, I just quick comment from you. I uh, I wish I were surprised. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm aware of is when it comes to human rights complaints, uh, the largest number of them come from people with disabilities, largely with regard to employment. Uh, the Getting the employer sector to understand that people with disabilities can and should work and that it isn't that big a deal to uh, make workplaces accessible and accommodating. Um, but uh, well, those were the UK statistics, but my concern is that this is, uh, you know, characteristic of many countries. So, uh, you know, I really am grateful to Fern for bringing this before us today. Yeah, I got to say that, you know, I don't think the statistics would be too far off of uh, North America, which is mm -hmm. really unfortunate. I think society has a lot to learn about some of the statistics we just shared. On that note, Danielle, you're going to bring on our next guest. I am. Variety, the children's charity of Ontario, presents the new active living trade show taking place tomorrow and Saturday at Variety Village in Scarborough, Ontario. The active living trade show is a two-day event where patrons will be able to check out and shop the latest and most innovative accessibility products, try accessible sports demos, and listen to motivational speakers in the disability community. To learn more about this exciting event, we're joined today by the CEO of the Children's Charity of Ontario Variety, Karen Stintz. Hello, Karen. Hi, thank you for having me on today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're very interested to hear what you're doing. Can you tell us a bit about what Variety does and why this work is meaningful to you? Uh, Variety of the Children's Charity Charity of Ontario has been serving children with disability for over 70 years. And uh, we right now our focus is helping kids with a disability participate in sport and fitness and recreational activities. So we do pro we do program all over the province, but our flagship facility is in Scarborough at Variety Village. And Variety Village will be hosting the Active Living Trade Show this year. Very, very cool. Can you tell us about the Active Living Trade Show and how specifically it came to be, if you would. Yes, it's actually had its own interesting history in that it, it used to be the People in Motion show and then it was the um, Access Expo. And now what we've done is combined um, a couple themes this year. So we're going to include an educational component. We've got a vendor conference. Uh, we've got some keynote speakers. As I said, we have some uh, sport demonstration opportunities. So we've really tried to um, have uh, a little bit for a lot. And uh, it's going to be two days of um, really interesting, uh, interesting, engaging speakers, um, you know, really showcasing uh, products and services that are available for people with disability and uh, also a little bit of fun in there as well. Well, that sounds really great. Who should be attending? Students, professionals, parents or kids? And what will they get out of the event? Yeah, all of the above. 
um, students uh, can register and, um, you know, again, get uh, keynote speakers around the latest topics of the day um, for on disability matters and issues and concerns that um, that they might find useful. Uh, we also have um, opportunities for those looking for employment to uh, be seeking and learning about what's available in the marketplace. We've got um, some vendors there to showcase new products and services that are available for kids and families with um, individuals that have a disability. And uh, they say we also have some some demonstrations for the kids. So if they want to come out and participate in some adaptive sports, that's uh, that's on Saturday. So let's talk about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact in person a variety events had. How excited is it to get this thing back going and to have people together for the trade show? Oh, it's really exciting. Uh, we, you know, we've been slowly reopening and inviting the community back into the facility. And um, we've, we've also done some, some pretty significant upgrades to the facility. So it's really exciting. And uh, there's a, it's a great atmosphere at Variety Village. And we're really excited to be able to host uh, this Active Living Conference and uh, invite people back to the facility and get people back together. Um, there's also going to be an awards night on Friday. So we're going to have um, be passing out some awards for lifetime achievement and adaptive sport, uh, lifetime achievement for making a difference for persons with a disability, and um, and just really welcoming the community back to Variety Village. Oh, that sounds like a fun time. What are you looking forward to the most at this trade show? Uh, I, you know, Friday night we have the awards night, and we also have a panel where we invite uh, some of those receiving awards to come and talk about uh, the things that they've done, the accomplishments they've had, the impact that they've made. And uh, for me, that's a real highlight um, because often in the disability community, we don't celebrate our successes enough. And so this is really a night of celebration that I look forward to. You're here to the celebrating of successes, particularly for people uh, with disabilities. And I, I love when you hear things like this and showcases like this, and you learn about you know different products, you meet people, you, you do all that kind of stuff. And so it's really uh, great to hear. Um, can you talk about the impact you have seen specifically on the kids' lives and through the work that Variety does? Oh, yeah, there's no question. There's no question. We've had um, kids um, participate in an adaptive hockey program we run. Um, and just this fall, we went to Sweden to participate in the World Cup of Volt Hockey. It's called Volt Hockey. And uh, for these kids and their parents, they never thought their kid would play hockey. And they're in Sweden competing on a world stage. And uh, our kids got second in their division. That's life-changing. Wow. Sure. So what can you describe volt hockey? What What is that? Yeah, it's a new adapted sport. Um, it's very popular in the Scandinavian countries, but uh, relatively new to Canada. It's uh, been here about seven years. And it's played in a specially designed uh, cart that's uh, battery operated. And um, if you can operate a joystick, you can drive these carts. And it's three on three. It can be played on any gym surface floor. And um, it's super fun. The carts can go up to 30 kilometers an hour when they're at their top wow. speed. And, uh, but what's Whoa, really important is fast. the carts, you're not allowed to run into each other. 
So <laughs> if you run into each other, then you get a yellow card. <laughs> so the kids have to really learn to be skilled in how they, they whip around the, uh, the court. But it's such great. It's a great experience because it brings kids together of all abilities, uh, boys and girls, any age, uh, any stage, they can come and they can play hockey. And to see the smile on their face, it just leaves you really, it's really impactful. Man, I can't, I cannot control my chair going six and a half kilometers an hour sometimes that it's full tilt. So add, add another, you know, uh, 25 kilometers to that. This could be real dangerous. And I know I would be, uh, getting yellow cards, which might turn into red cards, depending on how many times I actually <laughs> run into someone. So, I mean, this is, this is good. Um, can you talk, I, I always love to ask questions like this because for me, it's, it's to put events like this on, it, it takes a village to do. Can you talk about the team and the time it's been put in to put an event like this on? Yeah, no question. Uh, the team has been working full out and, uh, you know, Archie is fantastic. He is, he has been bringing together, uh, the members of the education community, college and universities to come on the first day to participate, um, in information sharing around people with disability and recreation and supporting, uh, programs for people with a disability. So he's been a superstar and, uh, it does take a whole team. We have, you know, people promoting the event. We've got organizers trying to make sure that everybody's got, uh, you know, a place to sit. And, uh, it's, it has been, uh, quite an effort. Um, and, but we're looking forward to it. Wow. So can you, uh, give us some details on how someone, uh, attends this trade show and, uh, where they can get more information? Absolutely. On our website, uh, varietyontario.ca. Uh, we have information about the Active Living Trade Show. It is a free event. Uh, so we ask people to register on Eventbrite, but it's not necessary. You can just show up. And um, as I say, Saturday, the Friday will be more educational focused. The Saturday will be more fun focused. Very cool. And um, for you, when you look at all this and you um, put this all together, when you step back and the event's over, what are you going to look for and say, that was a successful event. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, if we have, uh, you know, the students felt that they learned something, um, if people felt that it, they saw something new, uh, the vendors had a, an opportunity to showcase what uh, their products and services are. And uh, there's just a general sense that uh, somebody took, somebody, you know, everybody who was there learned something new. That would be for me a success. Fantastic. That's a, a very good measure, I think. And also just, enjoyment. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Thank you. That was Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety, the children's charity, talking to us about the Variety Active Living Trade Show that will be taking place uh, at Variety Village on uh, tomorrow and Saturday. You know, it's, uh, Danielle, it's interesting when you think of events like this and I have had the ch chance to attend what was previously called the People in Motion Show, which she mentioned, and they do a really good job at highlighting, you know, some products that you may um, you may not know about, to some fun, and I love it because you see kids of all abilities and all situations really get a chance to 
you know, do their best and see some of the products and most importantly, play sports with a 30 mile an hour cart. Well, I was about to ask you about that 30 <laughs> miles an hour. That sounds absolutely terrifying. I've seen like in, in my neighborhood, we have a, a few neighbors who, who use motorized wheelchairs and I don't think they go much above 10. So I'm just trying to picture what 30 would look like when there's a 20 uh, kilometer an hour speed limit in High Park, for example, mm. that that would be downright frightening, I would think. You wouldn't want to run into another cart going that fast, would you? No, like I said, uh, I have, you know, when I get going full throttle at six and a half kilometers per hour, it's, uh, it can get pretty, pretty good going. And if I'm not driving straight, I may end up you know, off the side of a uh, sidewalk. So I don't know if I'd be wanting to get into that. But nonetheless, it will be a great uh, event. And uh, we we love conversations like that. Coming up next is the Buzz with Bill. We know it's a little late, but that's because we had a little outage that took place. So we're doing Buzz with Bill and then an in-house roundtable. Stay tuned for both of those segments next year on Kelly and Company. We'll be back. There's been so many sort of odd things that have taken place in the last little bit. First of all, you may be just tuning in going, who is this guy talking? Well, I'm Brock Richardson, and I'm alongside Danielle McLaughlin. Why are we here? Well, that's because Kelly and Ramia are doing some shooting for Kelly and Ramia moving to TV. And so then we had a power outage, and we had to move some segments around. So for the avid listener who's thinking, well, it's 3.15, there's probably going to be some interesting topic. There is, but it's going to be the buzz with Bill. Bill, how are you? It's a bit later, but we are all here. Yes, uh, as I say, technical gremlins. Isn't that what uh, what the saying is? <laughs> yes, definitely. yes, it is. <laughs> they definitely got in the system. There is no doubt about that. Well, at least we're here now. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Now we... What do you got for us? Well, this first one is kind of interesting. New calculator tackles inequality in missing persons from Associated Press. So the folks okay. at Columbia University, um, they have developed a calculator that calculates the chances of you being found. And no, I know this is pretty morbid. It's going to calculate the chances of you being found based on your age, your color, your and all your demographics. So basically, we when they analyzed over three thousand, um, you know, missing person cases, they found that people of, you know, white people got more coverage than people of color and Latinos. They also found that if you live in a big city, you're going to get more coverage because there are, there are more basic, there are more news outlets. 
um, than if you were in a rural area. So the article was asking the question, is there not some way of more equaling the playing field? I mean, there are a lot of things that, that there are a lot of issues when it comes to this. Um, but certainly from what I, you know, the article, I think, makes a great deal of sense. You are who you are. And, you know, if you're a famous person, you are going to get more coverage. Um, if you fit a certain mold that the news media is like to to cut to cover, you're going to get more coverage. Um, so it's kind it's kind of interesting that that you know what what can we do to more equal the playing field? So you're you're telling us that if if you if somebody goes missing, the media is going to choose to cover that story depending a lot on the person's demographics or yeah, their attractiveness right. to, to the yeah. story or sympathy yeah, or right. something like that. Even that's though we right. would hope that everybody would be treated equally, that's not going to happen. Well, it's not. And the article made that comment that everybody should be treated equally. But what do you do with people that are runaways? How do you classify them as how maybe they aren't missing? Maybe they're runaways. Um, yeah. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to get a handle on how you can tackle this. But I'm going to tell you one thing that's really morbid. Mm -hmm. If you go to the website, um, areyoupressworthy.com, and you type in your demographics, you get oh. a chances what your chances are of being found. Oh my goodness! Um, you know, geez, if you're going to actually do that. Yeah, I don't think I would want to. I think. Yeah, I I know. It's a little depressing, you know, isn't it? The, yeah, the one depressing. thing, we, the one thing we've learned on today's show is that statistics cannot always be kind to certain things. And I, Bill, I understand the the premise of you know trying to see the chances of you being found. I, I, for me, I just don't see a reason. Like, I don't know what I would gain from knowing what the chances are I would be found because in in all fairness it would be all about like like you point out what is the situation what do you do with runaways uh you know there's all kinds of factors that go into this and and uh, to me I just think it would be kind of grim as you pointed out to look this up but it is an interesting tool to have for sure I I think it I could think be quite useful actually you know if, if you too. find out that you're in a demographic where people don't care very much, you're going to want to have your family members or people who who love you making a much bigger fuss if you you know than if you're say a, a movie star who goes missing and people are going yeah. to you know or the child of a movie star that makes you know would make a lot of media. So you know if if you find out this you, you're you're out of luck here. Let's see what we can do. I I think it could be a a useful tool in a horrible sort of way. Yeah, I, and I also think though it's important to. I'm and I'm, I'm glad they did this because now they can put these into a proper, more proper perspective. And maybe mm -hmm. there'll be a way of, you know, making the play field a little bit more equal. Of course, they can't treat everybody equal because there's too many, right? There's a lot of factors involved, but maybe there's something they can do to sort of tweak it. And that yeah. is always the hope, Bill, of like you want everybody to be treated equally and and the way that that is. So, I mean, you guys are right. And I never really thought about this. If you are a demographic that 
would have a, a lower chance. You would want, you know, your family to be a bit louder and boisterous and say, hey, we need the help and here's why. And maybe showing, you know, understanding that statistic would be helpful. So, yeah. Let's go with this other one, which is, go ahead. Yes, no, I was about to ask you, what else do you have? I hope something a little more cheerful. <laughs> well, we got something interesting. Red Cross, it speaks digital emblem um, to prevent hijacking. So the Red, you know how the Red Cross, uh, they have a, an emblem that they wear when they go into a war zone or wherever. So people know that they're from the Red Cross. Right. Um, in this day and age of, you know, of internet and whatever, they're seeking a digital emblem that, um, when you donate to the Red Cross or, or if you, you know, there are websites that they use that are secure and there are a lot of fraudulent websites that basically claim that they represent the Red Cross, which of course they don't. So they're looking for a way that you as an individual, or at least governments, um, can know that the particular website you go to is actually associated with the Red Cross and not somebody else. Ah. So if, if somebody else is asking for money but and trying yeah. to look like the Red Cross, you'll know that it isn't actually the Red Cross, especially if that's where you want it to I think so. And the other, the other thing that they mention is, is the arm, like intelligent agencies can spoof some of these things. So they're trying to make sure that, um, you know, that, that, that they leave the, these websites alone instead of, you know, thinking that there's, that there's something else, that there's someone, you know, that they're not who they say they are. It's, so, it's really, Bill, it's really scary that we're in a world now where we all have to make sure we all are who we are. You know, the, the Red Cross, along with other agencies, does great work, of course. But of it's course. too bad that we are in a situation where we all have to be sure of what we're donating to and that we're in a, we're in a world now where you kind of have to double, triple check your sources and make sure, am I giving to the, to the right um, situation here? Am I being spoofed? Is this the right situation? It's really unfortunate, but I do like what they're doing here. I think it's a good thing. Um, and I think they have to. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, considering the work that they do in war zones, the likelihood of them getting uh, hacked in some way is not Oh, yeah, small. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's hope it works. Yeah. Let's hope. What's your final one for us, Bill? Um, travelers are skipping um, RV deliveries. Um, so basically, in this in this article, you are, you know, how you take an RV, you you drive it from your house, or or you you pick it up from a rental place. There are businesses that are now going to deliver the RV to your park. And there are a lot of advantages to that. I think you're looking at people that can't hook up, that have it, you know, when you've got to hook up the sewage and electricity, a lot of people can't do that. You're saving gas because you're not driving the RV. You're just driving to the park in your car and the RV is already delivered. 
I kind of like the idea. Um, I guess some of the disadvantages are that you can't stop overnight because you're you're just gonna they're just gonna deliver the RV to where you want to camp. And some campsites are they don't allow RVs. Some do, some don't. So you're gonna have to do your research if you do this. Um, um, if you want an RV delivered, you have to know that the campground is going to allow that to be delivered. But I think it's it's certainly cheaper and it's a poignant article because pretty soon seniors are, you know, like what they call snowboarder, snowboarders are going to be leaving the the country because of the uh, the cold weather coming up. So I thought this was pretty good. And it is an alternative. If you don't want to drive an RV, um, you can just get it delivered. Can you get it delivered to Florida, though? That's <laughs> where they, yeah, that's, the snowbirds yeah, that's go. Right. Or, yeah, uh, is that's this right. is this a Canadian um, thing? Uh, or? This was that um, it was an American, so ah, I don't know whether could. I don't know whether it would apply to us or not. Hmm. Yeah, it's You're sort kidding. of like a, a a cottage, but not yeah. quite, right? Yeah, not, not quite. You can get anything delivered now, can't you? Like, <laughs> you can. that's just the way that it is. I mean, it's a great idea. I love it. I think it's, and as you point out, it's, you know, it's helpful for the, the snowbirds. And, you know, may, maybe that is. But to think that I would ever get a situation where I want an RV delivered somewhere, that's pretty cool, Bill. I love it. I, I guess think you're, so. you're renting the, the RV for this period of time, or are you yeah, buying you rent it? it. You rent you rent it. Yeah, you know, you rent it. You rent it. I wonder, there would have to be, though. I wonder if there's um, there, it's more expensive because it's specifically being delivered to you uh, versus you going to get it. I would feel like it that would come with an extra sort of cost just based on the convenience, if you will, of it being delivered to you. Could be, yeah. It could, it it may be. On the other hand, as I say, you're saving a lot of money by not driving the RV, so it might sort of balance it out a little bit. Sure. Yeah, because you're not commuting with it. You're just. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. right. You're just you're yeah. just using yeah. it. I guess yeah. those things use a lot of gas, right? Oh, they do. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. yeah. They're gas guzzlers. Yeah. So yeah. you'd you'd save on that. Yeah, you, were, you would. You know, you could just drive a regular car to the to the park and then you yeah there's your rv waiting for you and presumably yeah. if they deliver it they also take it away i would hope yeah they do they would take it away yeah so and you'd save on that too and there are some pretty fancy rvs out there so it would be cool i mean i, I used to like watching the celebrity rv shows where they would have this is so-and-so's rv and it's it's literally a home you know on wheels in this case you wouldn't oh, they be are. necessarily using the wheel part but you're using the the amenities of the actual rv so that's very cool bill thank you so much i uh, appreciate you uh, being flexible and coming to us uh 15 minutes or so later than normal no problem buddy i'll talk to you guys tomorrow i don't know who it'll be but someone will be there <laughs> it's always <laughs> a mystery bill yeah yeah you will yeah you will talk to Kelly and Ramya. They will return tomorrow. Uh, that's Bill Shackleton, who does the Buzz with Bill every Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Almost said every day. Not quite. Uh, coming up next, we're going to be joined by reporter Grant Hardy for an internal roundtable. Coming up next, stay tuned. Stay tuned.
Isn't it convenient that we have a round table? Well, it's actually it oval. Just say yeah. it. The blind guy feels it now. Goes, well, I don't know. I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. Well, it's Thursday, and it's the weekly roundtable, and I'll give you a little bit of context, because this wasn't a planned weekly roundtable. We were going to run a repeat, and one Brock Richardson, Danielle McLaughlin, reporter Grant Hardy said, uh, no, I think we can run a roundtable, so we're running a roundtable, so it's not with Kelly, it's not with Ramya, it's with Brock and company today, so... Uh, today we're joined by rep- presenter, excuse me, Grant Hardy, and we're going to be talking about Remembrance Day and sort of what's happened to Remembrance Day over the years. Grant, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. You know what's crazy, though, is that we say it's live, but... What if in some virtual reality, this is actually a repeat someday? <laughs> it could be. You're very right. You're very, very right. No, I promise you we are live, coming to you live. It will be a repeat at 10 p.m. and then 6 a.m. So at some point, yes, you're right, it will be a repeat. <laughs> but as we sit here, it is live. Um, the reason I brought this topic to the table, just to help give you guys uh, some context and the listener, and then we'll dive into the specific questions I have. A couple of years ago, I was at an appointment in Brampton, Ontario, and uh, my attendant and I, Catherine Batcher, who is familiar to the audience, and we were driving down, and we wanted to get down to the appointment for um, the 11 o'clock appointment. moment of silence uh, because we felt it was important. And by the time we arrived there, it was a couple of minutes before um, 11 a.m. Eastern time. And we sat and we waited and the appointment wasn't until I think it was like 11.30 or 11.45. So we had some time before and after the moment of silence. And as we were having a moment of silence, um, I recognized around me was a bunch of high school students who were going into the pizza shop that was next to the appointment that I had, and they were going in and out. And just before I turned to Catherine and I said, I wonder what's going to happen in a minute. Does everybody freeze? Do they stop? What do they do? And sure enough, as the moment of silence um, came to be, I continued to stare straight ahead of me and remembering all the veterans. And my grandfather was a war veteran in World War II, um, who's no longer with us. But I was watching and I was really shocked that the students were still moving around. And as I looked around, people that were above the age of 30, I would say, were stopped just like I was and just in a moment of silence. So I guess to lead off, Grant, we'll start with you. Do you think we've done enough to impress uh, the importance of Remembrance Day on our young youth? Well, I think that's a difficult question because, you know, I grew up, I'm a 1990s baby, and so I grew up in 
this time of like perpetual sort of, you know, at least in, you know, Canada and, and the U.S., relative peace and political stability and, uh, you know, kind of like not for everybody, but kind of, kind of like this this world of, of plenty. And one thing that was always impressed upon us in in school and stuff was, you know, it's very unusual actually to have such a long period of like political instability, not having, you know, a lot of war and conflict. And, but that just seemed so crazy to us. And, you know, I, I remember thinking like, I don't know if people would want to have big conflicts, big wars these days, you know, it's just like, I don't know, we've had such a long time of peace, you know, yada, yada. But look, now we're seeing deglobalization, we're seeing like renewed war, renewed conflict, we're seeing people going hungry and starving and environmental damage is causing more political instability. So I think one thing that I was always taught in history, it sounds cliche, but like, if you don't learn about history, you're doomed to repeat it. It's very cyclical, cyclical. So I think that's one reason why Remembrance Day is really important. The other reason, of course, is, you know, whatever we may think about whether these wars were, were justified or whether our part in them were justified, you know, we really had like lost generations of kids, basically, people who were, you know, too young to order alcohol, really, that were drafted into these wars and, and lost their lives or were severely traumatized and, and disabled. So I think that, you know, taking a day out of the year to kind of remember some of our past in hopes that maybe we won't repeat it and maybe we won't forget about who these people are because our memories are just so fragile is really, really important. And I'm not sure that we're doing enough to impress on our younger people why Remembrance Day is important. I think that you you have made a strong point there, Grant. I, I also think that, you know, history teaching to, you know, so that people will understand why people fought in, in wars, the ones that we, we remember in democratic countries, you know, fighting for rights, fighting for democracy is, crucial for, you know, for the survival of, of our way of life. And I think that when we talk about um, veterans, we talk about people who've really given up a great deal, uh, not selfishly, not just for themselves, because they think this is, you know, this, this is a fun way to spend some time, but people who fought really for the rights of others. And I think that that is a model that we need to impress upon people that, you know, this is what people do in democracies. They're, you know, we, we make sure that people understand that you have an obligation, not just to yourself, but to other people. And my hope is that, you know, with history being taught uh, regularly and constantly, that we can ensure that people are, are aware of why people have done what they've done for us. I think yeah. that Go Sorry, ahead, go Grant. ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I th and I think the idea is just like, you know, whether or not you think certain wars were justified, look, some, some wars clearly were about protecting 
are right, protecting democracy. Some wars are perhaps more strategic or, or political, but I think it's really important to remember the people on the front lines, the, the people who really had no control over it, but were, were sent to war by the government and lost so much trying to, to protect their own citizens. Yeah. I, I think right. for me, the thing that I look at this, this and say, well, this is what scares me is when I was in school, we had assemblies and we had veterans who would come in. We had different people. And I even think as I, as I was doing prep for this, we even had um, people who were um, part of nine uh, 11 and different wars and all, all that kind of thing. And I think for me, what, what I get worried is going to get lost on people is that part of the reason we are all where we are is because of what people did to fight for our freedoms, to fight for, you know, equality, all of those things, because without those people, in my mind, this would be a different world. And that's what sort of scares me. In that light, Danielle, um, with fewer veterans with us, what ties us to Remembrance Day, in your opinion? Well, I think, again, it's back to, to teaching history in the schools, but I, I remember, you know, veterans coming into the schools. I remember um, people interviewing that there, there was a project in high schools where uh, veterans were interviewed by high school students and their stories were captured and, and also broadcast, which I think was was wonderful. But I think that, you know, learning who they are and what they did, um, and and looking at people as individuals, not just this whole, you know, thousands and thousands of people, but looking at individuals and their stories. And I think that one of the things that that happened with these interviews was that the individual students learned something very personal about why people did what they did and how it affected their lives into the future. Um, but again, as you pointed out, there aren't very many World War II veterans left. There are no World War I veterans left. There are certainly some survivors from the Korean War and people who went to Afghanistan. Um, but, uh, you know, we really need to, to ask about, should it be a holiday? Um, you know, it used to be that uh, it was a, a holiday in all the provinces and, you know, the shops would close and bars would close and everything would, would close down. But now um, it's still a federal holiday, but in some provinces, it's not a statutory holiday. So what do you think? Should everybody get the day off to observe Remembrance Day or will it just be another day off school? Um, for me, I think it should be um, a, a day off. I know that Grant, we're talking to you from from British Columbia, which still does observe it as a holiday. And I, I but I do understand, Danielle, where you're coming from in the sense of um, that it might just be viewed as a day off. That is a narrative that is there. But I would hope that with enough sort of teaching and understanding and all of that, I would hope that it would be taken um, 
for the right reasons. And Grant, whether you want to uh, comment on the uh, previous question or whether you want to go as far as should it be a holiday, I'll give you the floor and uh, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think as we as we've already said, it it's really just important to to respect those people who who were on the front lines. I also think that you know, as humans, we really need to value things that are scarce and examples of things that are scarce are you know people's lives as in like we almost don't have any veterans left and memory is also scarce and so i think the risk of kind of like canceling or not honoring a day like remembrance day is that it's not hard at all to imagine in a couple generations, look, there's always going to be books, there's always going to be online stuff. But you know, I don't have a lot of memories, really, or or knowledge about pre like 20th century. I mean, I do, but it's not as organic, it's more factual. And I think that is the risk is that this knowledge will sort of not be front of mind. So I think there are always going to be people who just take the day off and have fun or sleep in or, or whatever. And that's the case for, for all holidays, even the more solemn ones. But hopefully there would be enough people who, you know, would take the day off and, and maybe try and do what reflection we can. Some people can do, you know, have more opportunity for, for that than, than others. But yeah, I, I do believe it should be a holiday and, and hopefully give people some opportunity to kind of think about the state of the world and and maybe how the past you know influenced that and I don't mean to sound like I'm kind of on a, a high horse I have just as much learning to do as, as anybody else but I, I think maybe that's kind of the point and why it should be a holiday. Um, to, to sort of close off the round table something that I learned today uh, Indigenous Veterans Day is celebrated in Canada on November the 8th, uh, from about uh, 1996, which was an alarming uh, note. Um, Grant, start with you. Do you think Canadians give enough, uh, you know, um, enough nod to what we see um, with Indigenous veterans? And do they get the recognition they deserve? I don't think they get the recognition that they deserve. I think Canada you know, really has had a very, uh, needs to have a a much better system of recognition and a much better relationship with those communities, which often can be forgotten about or or marginalized, which is really like a terrible thing. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think that it's, very nice that we're now beginning to pay much more attention to Indigenous Veterans Day because Indigenous peoples have served in the military uh, pretty much as long as there has been um, military in in Canada. And there were many heroes, there were many people whose contributions were enormous. And when we learn uh, who the individuals are and when we learn about how they were treated when they came back. And that's one of the things that I think is really troubling to learn that while 
some veterans, you know, received benefits, not so much the indigenous veterans, and mm -hmm. they were not given the, the, the recognition, nor were they given the benefits that such as uh, education and, and other things that uh, medical care, um, and, and many of them just really did end up on the streets because of the, you know, the lack of attention to their needs. So, you know, it's a little late in the day, but I think that we need to pay attention to this now. And hopefully in the future, when we realize that there are plenty of Indigenous people serving in our military in Canada, and, um, you know, they are uh, important people and we rely upon them. So, you know, let's make sure we know what we're what we're saying when we talk about the people who've been important. Indigenous veterans are as important as any other veteran. And do I think we do enough for Indigenous veterans? No. Do I think we do enough for any veterans? No. I think what they have given up in their life and what they've had to go through, and you speak about it as veterans, the Indigenous veterans being, you know, treated poorly. That's awful. They still defended the country as does anybody else. And so to me, you talk about equality and being treated. We spoke about that in our last segment, and I think it stands true again. That is our roundtable for this week. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. That was presenter Grant Hardy joining us for the weekly roundtable. Danielle and I will return to tell you what's coming up on Now with Day Brown and give you a little preview of what's coming up on tomorrow's edition of Kelly and Company. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Kelly and Company. I'm your host for today, Brock Richardson, and I'm alongside Danielle McLaughlin. And at this point in the show, we highlight some stuff you should go back to and listen on the podcast. Danielle, why don't you go ahead first? Well, I always enjoy speaking with Michael Fair. And today he was telling us about some games that are accessible and available. It's called Choice of Games Company. That's the company that, that creates these. And um, they give you multiple choices, that ways you can win or lose the game. So I found it interesting to hear why it's so accessible for people with low vision or, or who are blind. It uses lots of uh, text, lots of words to uh, tell you what you're doing and, and where you're going. And then he also told us about some horror-themed games that are available in this collection. They sound a little too spooky for me, but I know that we have listeners who are yeah, into the spooky and scary, um, just not me. But I strongly recommend that people re-listen to the, the podcast where they can hear Michael Fair talking about all of the fun things that they can do with these highly accessible games. I've told Michael in the past that uh, I'm not a horror person either, but I've told him in the past, you could sell me the phone book because his passion on anything he brings to us is uh, palpable. And we love having Mike on the program every uh, Thursday. I liked the discussion with Fern Lollum, our friend from the UK, 
talking about figures published by the UK Office for National Statistics. And I have to say that some of the statistics she shared was a little bit puzzling. And I know, you know, we we were saying, oh, these are UK numbers, but Danielle and I were talking about it being that it wouldn't be so um, unlike when you look at North America. So that was a fascinating conversation as well. Another fascinating conversation is the one we get to have with Paul Daniel. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Brock. Yes, I, it is a fascinating thing if we can have a conversation with me. It was always fascinating. <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> Tomorrow's show, the Friday news panel with Dave Brown, Judy Gupta, and Michelle McQuig convened to discuss some of the big issues of the week, including the federal government's announcement earlier this week of its goal to admitting 500,000 immigrants by 2025. The panel will examine the impact this announcement will have for Canada's future. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will review the documentary Gratitude Revealed, and Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will provide her feature selections from the Sela Collection all of whom were winners at this week's Writers' Trust Awards. Fantastic. Sounds like a great lineup. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. That was Paul Daniel, producer over there at Now with Dave Brown, which you can catch at 9 a.m. in the morning on AMI-tv. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure, as always, and I hope it's not too long before we get to do it again. That's how I feel too, Brock. Always fun to do this together. Let's do it again soon. We'll kick Ramya and Kelly off to do something busy and we'll get their chairs. Yes, of course. Well, (laughs) Kelly and Ramya will return tomorrow. In fact, they're pushing through the door right over there and they're telling us to get out of our seats. So we will do that and they will return on the program. Tomorrow, you can catch Grant Hardy, who's going to give us the latest lifestyle headlines. Plus, John Beeler is going to give us the latest app update. And we're also going to talk to a regional content development specialist. And to start the second hour, we're going to talk to Bill Shackleton with the Buzz with Bill, as we do on Friday. Ryan Huey of the Chatty Bookshelf will join us as well to give us the latest on audiobooks. And then to wrap up the show, we do Cut for Time. All that coming up your way tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern when Kelly and Ramia return. Until then, be safe, be well. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, and I've been alongside Danielle McLaughlin. Have a great night. guys, it's Brock Richardson providing you with today's vanity card, and I thought today I would go back a little bit in time and talk a little bit about Halloween and my experience and how it was for me and my wife. We are affiliated with a church which is called the Cavalry. They have three different campuses. They have one in Cambridge, 
one in Kitchener and one in Air. And the one in Kitchener is the one that opened up recently. And all three of these churches are sort of within the same geographical area of each other, a little bit apart, but different communities, but close together all at the same time. And we went out to the Kitchener Halloween outreach event. And for me, growing up, Halloween was always a big deal. It was always get dressed up, go get some candy. And we would do the old-fashioned way of doing things of like getting the big pillowcases and, and filling them up. And then we'd come back home when they're filled up and dump them out and go back out until such time my parents kind of put the kibosh on it of like, okay, it's 10 o'clock now, it's time to go home. And I just feel like Halloween has lost its zip uh, lately. There's been a lot of discussion about, you know, when Halloween's on a weekday, how does that function for people? How does that work? Kids coming home from school, got to get up early the next day, and all of those things. And for me, that was never a concern as a kid. My parents were always very open and relatable to be able to say, you know what, it's Halloween, get dressed up, go ahead and do what you want to do. And it was nice to be at this outreach event because I really felt like the spirit of Halloween was still alive. It was still there for kids. And they had a lot of kids and a lot of families. There was over 150 families who participated in this outreach. And you could just sort of feel the you know, spirit of Halloween being what it was. And I think that's something that's been lost, at least for me personally, over the last little while. And it was just nice to see that the communities do still have Halloween. So I hope all of you had a wonderful Halloween and you enjoyed today's show. Take care. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.